Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, hello there, and you join us here today to talk to someone who's doing something a little bit different in the watchmaking space. They've seen what everyone else is doing, and they've thought, no, we're going to do it our own way. This is H. Moser. Tom, we, we talk about Moser quite frequently because of all the crazy different things that are going on. Um, but I wondered if we could bring someone else into the mix who could share from their perspective. Tom, do you think that's a good idea? Oh, yeah. What are you thinking? CEO, VIP? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, Edward, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thank you for having me. For those people who have been living under a whole pile of rocks the last few decades, why don't you tell us who you are and why you're here talking to us about Moser? Oh, you introduced me briefly, but uh, yeah, Edouard Melon is uh, is my name, uh, born in the Vallée de Joux, so one in uh, one of the uh, hubs of traditional high-end Swiss watchmaking. Um, I have a few generations of, of watchmakers behind me. Uh, my father worked for one of a of the big brands uh, out there in the Valley du Jour for many years. He actually worked for a few brands. He worked for Cartier, for JLC, but then many years for for AP. And um, and yeah, we I'm I'm an engineer by um, by education. I did a master in engineering, then I did an MBA in the US. And with my family, we took over Moser in 2012. So a little bit more than 10 years now. And um, that's probably the reason why you want me to uh, to be here and <laughs> and, and and give some insights. And I've been actually CEO of, of H. Moser since um, uh, almost 10 years, because I think it was March 2013 that I took that role. Yeah, so I'm going to hazard a guess that if we have any questions about Moser, you're probably the guy to talk to about it. Now, if I recall, Moser was uh, rejuvenated in 2002. Uh, you came on board 10 years after that. How did those two things come to be? So yeah, that's. I mean, it's very interesting. Moser is um, is almost 200 years old as a, as a brand. Um, but back in the 80s, late 70s, obviously, it went through the, uh, the quartz crisis and, and there were quite some time where there was no actual production of, of, the, of the brand. Also, the, the brand still existed in the hands of, of uh, uh, different entrepreneurs and groups, but there were, were about 20 years where nothing was being produced. And then under the leadership of uh, the great-grandson of Heinrich Moser and a few other, other um, entrepreneurs, including Dr. Lange, who was an ex-IWC, uh, they relaunched the brand starting in 2002 and coming to life in 2005 which with, uh, with uh, one very specific watch, which was the Perpetual One, today known as the Endeavor Perpetual Calendar, or depending on the collection we have. 
and they they yeah they relaunched the brand they built a museum they built a manu- an amazing manufacturer the same place where we are today uh created an amazing movements but ran into financial issues um towards 2010 11 12 and that's when uh, many people looked at the at the project and and assessed the possibility of keeping the the, the brand alive and um and to be honest, uh, it looked quite complicated, especially for bigger groups. So that's where why we we got the opportunity as a small independent family of passionate. Um, uh, we had we had the opportunity to take over and and give it a try, and that was in 2012. <laughs> it sounds like a bit of a roller coaster of an experience, and I I remember the revival of of Moser fairly well because it was a period where a lot of things were. Oh, you know, names were being brought back there are some really really great examples of how not to do that and generally speaking the cynical in the world would be assuming that Moser was going to be another one that did that what do you think made the difference for Moser? it's difficult to say i mean i think it's always easier to come after somebody else and assess what they've done right and what they've done wrong uh to be honest i i i find Amazing what my predecessors did. I think they did quite a, f- a few mistakes uh, that we were able to analyze and understand. But they did amazing things in terms of of developing an identity f- in terms of from a technical standpoint for Moser uh, in the movements in the aesthetics of the design as well. So functional and a- aesthetical design. I think that's that's the that's the key um, for me. It's something that is very very important. I think they had the right ingredients as well. An amazing history, quite unique. Um, they have a lot of, of elements from this his history that they they kept alive and they can they could reuse. They invested a lot in a in a manufacturer, which you know uh, is a dream uh, for me to be able to work with. Um, and early uh, in an early stage, they had great partners around the globe. Um, Prime partners like Buhoha, for example, which is the biggest retailer in the world, who took on Moser as uh, probably their first independent brand back in 2000 and I can't remember, 14, 15, uh, sorry, before that, before we arrived. So they, they, I think they had kind of a, an, an interesting mix of, I would say, all, all the ingredients that could make it a success. That's what we had analyzed. But uh, but yeah, building a brand is needs more than that. And that's where we came into the picture. And um, I think what was important is to say, you know, what should we keep and what should we change? And um, I have a little bit of an experience in the, um, I would say, really raw, independent, true independent watchmaking, where you have all those crazy guys create, creating crazy things. Uh, but at the same time, I was born in very traditional watchmaking. And I think the opportunity that we uh, kind of identified was to create a bridge between those two worlds, which were, which was at that time not I would say populated, and that's where we found a sweet spot for Moser. It's it's interesting that you say that you come from an engineering background, and that Moser had built from two thousand and two a strong engineering capability. With uh, I think it was Precision AG is the the movement manufacturing side of that. That's the yeah, hairspring manufacturing, yeah. That's right, yeah. And the thing that's always been impressed upon me about Moser is that Moser says we're going to make this thing. So take the Swiss Alp watch. It's a rectangular movement in a very specific case size, almost just done just because. And I know how difficult it is just to create a normal round movement. So that's the engineering side, but you've brought an artistry to it as well, I think. From the other end of the scale, in fact, we we recently visited um, Art in Time, 
a retailer in Monaco, and they have a selection of Moser pieces there. And we were utterly blown away. Uh, and I don't know if you have a name for the specific dial, but the dial on the um, the Pioneer Mega Cool that just explodes with light, which whichever direction you look at it. So where did you find the inspiration for the business with regards to the aesthetic? Well, as I, as I mentioned, I think the, there were a lot of things that were there. And the first thing that I did was trying to... Um, to see what what to keep and what to uh, to um, let go, so to say. Mm-hmm. And um, the first thing we did was a simple slide. When I was doing a kind of an analysis, I mean, I I like to analyze, and maybe I'm a bit Cartesian there, but we did an analysis of what we had in terms of aesthetics. Um, I like to use other brands, and for example, Breguet. You know, you have the hands, you have like the the, the specificities on on the side of the of the case. You have like. Uh, the, the certain type of dial. So I always took Breguet as kind of, a, of an example of a round watch that has a lot of aesthetics that are very specific. So yeah. for me, it was important for Moser to identify what would be the key elements that we should identify as being Moser. And um, back in 2012, and until back to, to, to 2012, we had a lot of very round watches uh, in white gold or rose gold with silver dials or black dial. But there was one particular model which was made of palladium it's what they call at that time the gray fumé dial, and uh, and that was one of the elements that really was I would say essential to the future of Moser was to say, well, out of those hundreds of SKUs that they had at that time, there was this one which which was fairly different, because any of the other and we did the exercise, we removed the logo on the other watches and then put it next to a Calatrava, a Patrimony, a, a Julot Mar, and they all look very similar. You couldn't really identify, but back then we didn't have a Royal Oco or Nautilus to uh, to to create something that is truly different for our brand. So we had to work with round watches. So that's where the Fumedal became kind of the cornerstone of what we really did uh, in very early is trying to starting to play with colors, and then we we played on on the side of the cases to say like all our watches should have like free forms on the side, like. It's not. It's really three-dimensional cases. Um, so we want in all collections to work really the side of the cases and not have uh, flat um, elements. The f- shape of the hands came also to to us. Then we look at the logo when everybody was trying to go towards like capital letters because it's more. It makes it more lu- luxury. Reduce. Keep. Give away like the and sons and and company and whatever. We uh we said let's let's keep the very traditional Moser logo and not follow what all agencies were telling us like you need to revamp your logo because it makes us different, and uh, and slowly we we found our way and um, at the same time as I said in the beginning we have we had the chance to have the perpetual one which was for me like the cornerstone of the technical uh, design which was all about making complex watches look very simple I wanted every Moser watch to look like a three hands watch. So combining those few elements of aesthetics with this philosophy on on the on the movement side kind of defined the elements uh, that we needed or the codes that we needed for every future developments at Moser. This sounds more like a conversation, like a, a creative direction conversation for a modern tech brand. Almost, it's a very similar mentality with that strategic and pragmatic and. Very different to what I've seen in a lot of other watchmakers, which is we create and it will be what it will be. Breguet is a great example of that, I think. Um, how how do you bring that different mindset? Where does that come from? I think from from day one we said, you know, we we are a small brand. We need to be different, and not only in what we on our our output, but also on the way we work. And we we decided we said 
early on that our culture should be of a, of a 200 years old startup. So very like creative, open-minded, uh, innovation driven, like throwing ideas at each other, uh, bouncing ideas and, and being honest about what's good and what's not. And, um, it's funny in many cases, I sat down on forums next to, uh, the, the big CEOs of these industries and many are, are complaining that it said, oh, we would love to do what Moza does, but we can't. And I said, well, why can't you? I mean, uh, Apple, who is way bigger, uh, is very innovative and creative, but it's it's a philosophy, it's a culture that you need to create around that. So I think you're right. I mean, we we kind of came in and, and kind of said, you know, there's no way we can compete based on budget. So we need to compete based on creativity and, and innovation. And the only way to do that is by, you know, being very open-minded, trying to find and grab ideas from here and there. And if you do it alone in your office and you know close your door, it doesn't work. So it's really about building a team around you of people you trust, and um, also an experience that I learned from my previous experience, where unfortunately um, it it failed. Uh, being an entrepreneur uh, is that you, you yeah you need a few people around you uh, who can be honest to you and say like listen you're gonna screw up. So you need to that that doesn't work. You need to uh, and they need to be confident and and direct enough to to come to you and tell you that. So if you can build a team around you. Who, uh, who is like that, then uh, I think you can win. And that's what we did. Most of the people that work with me today were there 10 years ago. And, uh, and there's a lot of trust and, and, uh, and I would say, um, well, proud, pr pride because of what we achieved, but also everybody has, has the, um, the possibility and, and the willingness to, to, to bring his or uh, her input in the, in the process. Yeah. I, th I think that's really interesting. Um, that was, that was going to be one of my questions that you, you sort of touched on there was what does a brand do that's coming into its tricky 200th year in business? Um, like what are the goals for a brand as that? And, and, and as you say, it's, you know, pulling ideas from all over and having a strong team. What, what, what's the process like when someone, you know, brings ideas to the table that are as mad as some of the things you put out, like cheese and Vanta Black and all these sorts of things? Is that, are there like these anything goes kind of brainstorming me meetings at Moza? That's that's the typical where we have workshops that we do on a regular basis where we throw those ideas. We have, uh, I, can, I wish I could show you, maybe you can see it here, like on my door, you see all those post-its. These are like the kind of, of sessions where we just throw ideas and then we we take them off and then uh, along the years we uh, we implement them or not. And we're very yeah. democratic. Again, if uh, if somebody has a very strong mind mindset and saying, usually it's a lot, it's a few people. And usually it's me like that has a crazy idea and the others are like, ah, you know, maybe not this time. And then, and then I'm... I'm <laughs> Usually, usually I would listen, uh, but not always, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but uh, but no, it's it's also like I said, as the role as a CEO is also to kind of set a vision, long term ideas, and then bring the impulse. Like people bring projects, and then we say, okay, let's do it, and then push behind and say, hey, you know, we wanted to do this. Where do we stand? Um, and I think uh, as we go, the more it, it is this way, and and. You said we're reaching 200 years, so we always have new projects, new ambitions, and we have more and more um, means also to our ambitions. In the beginning, it was, I would say, if I look just from a product standpoint, um, in the beginning, we 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 did a lot of revamping. So it was like new dials or re-engineering of the same movement. And then suddenly we started developing a new movement and then help also from external friends to, to do something new. And now we are in processes where we're looking at projects that are five years ahead. I mean, 2028 is our 200 years anniversary. 
and we have big projects. We like, you know, uh, today Moser is known for amazing uh, simple complications or simple single complications. They're not simple, uh, but I think multi complications, uh, grand complications are the next step for a brand like ours if we want to be. We, we might never be, but to, to be able to compare certain of our products with the grand complication from the, the Patek, the Lange, the AP, the Vacheron of this world, um, we need to get there, but in the Moser way. Hmm. <laughs> well, that sounds exciting. Yeah. I mean, that could mean literally anything, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you read the codes of Moser, it could be, it couldn't be anything. It has to, I mean, there's a certain things, right? There's. You look at the perpetual, you look at the chrono. Again, as what I said, like everything at the center, it has to be, it looks simple, but yet complicated. So there's, it could be any, everything, but it has, for me, it's important that it follows these few codes that we have established. So maybe we can put that together as a little bit of an equation so I can reverse engineer your thinking to help me understand the future. So design codes, engineering background, innovation, and not in the way that the industry tends to use the word innovation, but actually doing things different. How did that lead to cheese? <laughs> cheese, 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 cheese. Um, <laughs> You're probably sick of the word cheese now. Aren't you? The cheese, no, the best cheese in the world, the Vacheron Mondeau in the Valley de Joux. That's where I grew up. That's that's <laughs> part of the of the equation. But uh, no, the the cheese came actually from, um, believe it or not, but back in I think it was uh, January 2015. Don't you don't know if you remember, but for us in Switzerland, it was a big time because the Swiss franc used to be pegged to um, to the euro and the dollar and um, like the Swiss National Bank would buy currencies to protect our our Swiss franc from being too strong. And for brands like ours, exporting most of our output was very important to uh, to make sure that the Swiss franc is not too strong. And unfortunately, uh, January 15, 2015, or around that date, um, they decided without warning, even though a few weeks before they had said, we're going to continue this this uh, this policy of, of protecting, they just stopped from one day to the other. And, and the Swiss franc gained value by about, I think, 20% or something. So that had a huge impact on our business. And at that time, everybody was talking to the big CEOs of the big industries in Switzerland and what impact it would have on, on them and maybe on the cash reserves they had. We were entrepreneurs at Moser. We had no cash reserve. On the contrary, we, we were in debt. We had lost so much money on the years before until we took over with, with my family and we were like slowly breaking, you know, this uh, this this loss uh uh, vicious circle and then suddenly boom we get that in our face and nobody talks to the entrepreneurs so I wrote a letter to the the president of the national bank an open letter and this letter suddenly like was published everywhere around the world and created a huge uh, buzz and for probably for the first time many people heard about Moser so tick, <laughs> cutting this story short a lot of people <laughs> and, and even my, my father at the board said oh my god you turned this into an opportunity you should do that every six months <laughs> and uh, so that people talk about Moser because, you know, you can do yeah. ads in the magazines, but this brought, brought us much more visibility than anything we've done before. And then um, it made me, I think it gave me a lot of self-confidence and also it made me realize that if you have something to say that is important, that that adds, uh, that has a meaning, then people are ready to listen. And especially when there's a strong symbol be behind, which was this letter. So a year later, Pretty much on the same at the same time, we we were for the first time at Watches and Wonders, Watches and Wonders, and we launched the Swiss Alp Watch, and the Swiss Alp Watch was part of the reflection following these discussions we had about the letter is how can we be part of the news and the big uh, topic at the moment at that time in 2016 was the the connected watches and how it would destroy the Swiss watch industry. So we said how can Moser respond and be part of the news, and that's when we decided to say well listen. 
when everybody's like a few brands were starting to put like uh, RFIDs on their band or creating connected what connected mechanical watches, whatever. We said no. For Moser, we go the other way. We think it has we can work with this um, uh, category of connected watches uh, because they're very different. So let's get inspired from each other, and that's when we inspired ourselves from the design of connected watches and created the mechanical version of it. And that's when we launched the Swiss Alp watch, which created again a big uh, big buzz. And then we said, well, let's let's try to make it a tradition. So every year, let's have a topic we want to express and use and 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 feature a crazy watch at Watches and Wonders. So people come to see us not only for the the next three hands watch that anybody could be launching, but also to create something, to discover something that is very um, that is very unique. And I mean, if I if I go to a to a car show, I want to go and see the concept cars. I want to see the craziest things, not the things that will be in the showroom that I can see six months from now uh, around the world. I want to see the future and I want to see something that has a meaning. And that's why we we decided a year later, knowing that on January 2017, there would be changes in the regulation around the Swiss uh, Swiss made label, how to acquire the, the Swiss made lab label. Let's talk about it. And we said um, at Moser, you know, we are 100, 200% Swiss. We make pretty much everything in-house. So we don't want to use Swiss made anymore. So back at the end of 2016, we, we announced that we would stop create, uh, using the Swiss made on our dials. And January 2017, we launched the most Swiss watch ever made using Swiss materials. And the most well-known Swiss <laughs> material is obviously cheese. So cutting the story short, that's how we launched the Swiss Mad Watch, which was kind of a satire about um, explaining a little bit more about what does Swiss made mean, which upset, did upset a little bit a few people because I think some of the people in the watch industry preferred to let collectors and people around the world believe that Swiss made meets 100% Swiss, whereas we know it's not the case. And that's what we kind of highlighted in our with our um, campaign, make Swiss made great again, with a very simple product, which was the cheese watch, the Swiss mad watch. Wow, that was a long story, no? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, oh, the, the, every, every time you come up with one of these watches, it's like a real highlight because Tom and I, we see a lot of watches. We read a lot of press material and a lot of it is very sycophantic and oh, heard it all before. But whenever Mosa comes up with something, you, 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 you put what you're doing down and you take a look. Yeah, not every time. I think it's important to have a good mix. I mean, we're launching something in two weeks from now, which is just, you know, um, beautiful dial, amazing new material, but it's something very traditional to Moser, high-end craftsmanship, etc. So I think it's you need to find a, a good mix between the two. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely, of course. But e even then, so last year at Watches and Wonders, uh, we saw for the first time the full Vantablack piece, the streamliner there. And it's one of the, the, the memories that stuck most with my experience because... It was just different. It was just a visual treat to try and enjoy in the sea. And I think you aren't just throwing things in the face of the industry just to be contrary. You're not just being assholes. You're making a point with it. And sometimes that point is very strong and sometimes that point is more subtle. And for one of the ones that you were saying doesn't necessarily jump in your face, what I really like, and I'm taking the opportunity to say this because I imagine we're not going to have conversations every day, what you did with the streamliner flyback chrono, where you made it automatic but allowed us to see the mechanism by sandwiching the rotor in there. I suppose to turn this into a question, the watch industry has been around for a very, very long time. 
But I look through your catalogue and I see things that I've never seen before, again and again and again, and I see them in volume. This is very impressive for a small brand. How on earth do you find the time, the resources and the capability to do that much work and it all be to such a high standard? I think what's important is all, is one thing we, we forget to talk about is transparency. I think a lot of people in the watch industry believe, believe or, or claim that they do everything in-house, but actually nobody does. And we're very transparent about that. And the, the for example, the chrono you're referring to is is our great friends from uh, from Geneva, the Vidresh family called Agenor, who developed that movement. Mm -hmm. And it was my dream chrono. But when I said we want to do a chrono at Moser, it would be everything at the center, it would be flyback, it would be, if possible, like the bull's head, and they had developed it, and I knew them. So the big question was, do we want to be and uh, claiming that we have made that in-house, uh, spend years, et cetera? No. So we went to them and they said, you know, they they, they needed a, a brand with a certain scale to help them develop this uh, and, and bring the, the this this uh, movement in, in, in bigger quantities. And we decided to partner on, on that. And now we continue to develop it together. Uh, same thing on on the miniature repeater. It's something where we have certain capabilities, but we don't have all of them. So we we went to uh, unfortunately a friend of mine called Pierre Favre who passed away a few years ago, and he helped us uh, developing the aspect of the miniature repeater, and then uh, that's how we implemented it. So I think it's 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 I think that's the strength of the of the independent watchmaking, and not only us. I mean, when you when you talk, and we're probably going to mention them afterwards uh, about MBNF. There's the NF, and the F brings a lot of innovation and creativity. Of course, Max, you know, drives a lot of the vision, etc. But I think at Moser, without without having the F, we have a lot of of friends helping us, yeah. and and I, I and I really want to recognize their their involvement in that. I mean, I see every day brands using things that I know they haven't developed, but it's like, oh, it's our <laughs> new special perpetual calendar from this and this and this that we developed, and I know very well that it's my friend from Geneva or from there who, who developed it. And I'm like, why, why, why such? I mean, why, why do you have to lie about it? Is it bad that it's those amazing people who actually developed it for for you? Does it change really the number of watches you're gonna sell, or is it just to to uh, to grow, to grow your ego. I don't know. I think uh, we need to be and recognize the value of the people behind. And I think at Moser, when we hire people, for me, it's very important that we have in the different aspect, project management, engineers, develop development. I want people who have a very strong general culture of watchmaking. I want them to be able to be like, oh yeah, remember that reminds me of the Omega, uh, uh, whatever, or the uh, Universal or the Patek from 1967 uh, with those hands that were very special and and etc. I think this is very important, and I have the chance to uh, to have in the in the team also in the top management. I have my brother who is always around the world because he's based in Dubai, but manages the office that we have in Hong Kong, in China, in Dubai, and in New York. So he's traveling all the time, knows a lot of people in the watch industry. We're also have Nicholas, who has been in the industry for many years, worked for Chopin for many, but who is also very um, curious about what the others are doing. I think myself as well. Um, so we have those very interesting discussions where we use a lot of comparison with what others have been doing. And we know quite a lot of, of people, especially the independent creators, the independent artisans, the, the craftsmen of our industry. And I think that's where a lot of the ideas and resources and capabilities come from. It's not the, I don't know, we have a hundred people here. We cannot do everything that we the, that we have created over the years alone. Uh, but I think it's important to recognize the people who helped us. The, the crazy thing is, is that the, the Swiss wristwatch business, the industry was built up on partners working together. 
um, trying to recover the industry after the, the death of the pocket watch. And it seems odd to me that there's this false history, if you like, a rewritten history that things are made in-house. Um, on that note, you don't seem to be afraid of calling the industry out. How How's that working out for you? Well, I think... Um... In general, it works pretty good. I think it's. Uh, I think especially on the on the front side, I think the all, the retailers as much as I mean our partners as much as the, the the consumers appreciate that. I think we are in the in a time where people want want transparency, they want uh, honesty, they want authenticity, and I think that's a lot of things that we as kind of human sized brand uh, can bring. Um, of course, we don't do everything perfect. Uh, we've been called out also on certain things, but we take responsibility. I mean, I'm, uh, I mean, we are, I think, very connected to our community. Um, they're very vocal and every second day there's somebody who's going to say, you know, why um, did Moser do this? Or I'm, I'm not really happy with that. Or, or you know, I, I could expect better service. We take note, we respond, we uh, we take responsibility for it and we try to resolve the um, the issue. And I think, yeah, I think it's important. It's important to, um, yeah, to go, to bring this extra connection to the community, to really be um, not just salespeople who, uh, deliver a watch and then that's your issue to deal with no, i think people want to be uh to have to have the security that there are people who are behind that that know know more or less what they're doing and then if there's anything they're still there for us and that's what we try to really um to work towards with with Moser. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the availability of Moza or Blackoff and then the the resale value increasing is definitely demonstrating that increased passion from collectors and it's it's something that i've been eyeing up from a distance unfortunately i missed my opportunity to purchase a moser when one was affordable to me <laughs> um, but i've very much noticed that collectors who have moved away from collecting stainless steel rolex because all the vintage ones have been purchased or are really expensive now moving into independence are seeking more of a, a human connection as you mentioned you're a human brand being able to work, not just to go to a retailer and buy a watch, but to work on creating unique and custom pieces and having a say. How do you as a small brand manage the weight of that communication without it becoming overwhelming? Well, I mean, again, you need to, to pick and choose. You cannot answer every question and, and every request, but I mean, we are a significant team now. I mean, we've, with people on, on every continent now, representing the brand with also having the possibility to 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 take decisions and write a response without having asked to ask the management you know the hierarchy is pretty flat and of course i would say with my brother we uh we, we take most of the the key decisions um but i mean if it's to answer a client and and take a, an action to resolve an issue then i encourage them to do so and will not uh you know um, chase them for making a mistake so i think it's empowering the people helps reduce the number of problems and and uh, and getting the trust of the community because they know course slowly it's getting more and more difficult to get direct access to me or my brother even though we would love to but it's just size doesn't allow anymore but having like a claudio in the us or uh, michael in in hong kong or, or uh, you know nicholas and his team here in switzerland uh allow them to get the confidence that they have direct access to people who can decide and that uh, that that definitely helps uh that helps a lot uh, you, you mentioned MBNF and the partnership you have with them. It was really great to see both you and MBNF uh, getting the spotlight at this year's GPHG. 
it's a fascinating turnaround for both organizations because you've both gone up against the industry and said, you know what, you're boring. <laughs> We're going to do things a little bit more interestingly. How does it feel now to get the recognition of an industry that when we look back over the years, you have consistently uh, ribbed? I would, I would lie if I would say it's, uh, it's very pleasing. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, you know, I always, I always believed it would happen. I was like, this is crazy. I mean, for for someone, somebody like me who likes products, who likes watches, who likes what's behind it, I was like, why is it pure marketing that creates the value of all the products? Why people don't recognize that? You know, in a in a in an independent brand, there's much more value sometimes in terms of craftsmanship, in terms of technology, in terms of even human dimension than than uh, than most of the the bigger the bigger brands. And I I, I used to refer to a book called uh, uh, Luxury or in French Lux Oblige from a, um, a professor from uh, HSC in, in Paris, where he was looking at back at the history of luxury and how, you know, watchmaking or luxury in general used to be like a craftsman that you would visit in a city like Paris or Geneva or London, and you would order your special luxury product and then wait until you you get it. And then you had, would have to go there and and get it. And then suddenly it be, we we turn into a world of uh, ubiquity where everything is available everywhere. It's like uh, it's just about marketing, and you just the customer is just there and goes to a, the store and and gets it. And I think true luxury is still the old way. And I think there's nothing closer to to that than what independent watchmaking does, where it's it's limited. Yes, it's not for everybody. Yes, maybe you can also customize a little bit or. Um, and that's for me the, the the true luxury where value is, and I think slowly people have started recognizing it uh, in the in the recent years. Um, I think the 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 um, speculative um, market has probably helped because people started thinking, you know, what's the big thing after art? Uh, what's thing that are in limited production, um, very compli complicated to duplicate? And I think they came to the to the idea that yes, watches are, are one thing, but not the mass produced. Those where it's more of a of an artisan, an artist behind the brand, and that's exactly what independent brands do. And uh, slowly, people kind of made the parallel, and then the markets started going up with maybe Juan first, and then brands like uh, like uh, like Moser uh, following closely behind. And uh, and I think uh, suddenly the entire independent category lift up lift it up and again we, we we haven't touched a fraction of of the world uh potential and just look at china for example i don't think a lot of chinese customers who actually are, is one of the biggest potential uh, watch market very 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 few knew know about uh independent watches or independent brands just realized with moser for example we opened a pop-up store a year and a half ago uh, the first day we had one gentleman who came in and wanted to buy everything we had in the in the store, and it's very difficult to import in China. So we we said no, wait, uh, we need to have a few watches in the windows. But it's a handful of people. But if if say, they suddenly follow the trend that we see in the U.S., in Europe, in the Middle East, wow, we're up for a big ride with uh, with other independent brands. I think it's already it's really crazy. Exciting. So I can't imagine how it's going to be. But yeah, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think that rise in popularity and interest in independent manufacturer will actually put a strain on you in any way? Do you think there will be a pull towards, you know, greater volumes and things, and that might actually affect the way you work? The chance that we, I mean, the, the chance, and 
it's, it's a, I believe it's a chance. It's that we are kind of automatically protected from ourselves and our ambitions by being integrated, because being an, in, 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 an integrated manufacturer forces you to to grow slowly. Because yeah. I cannot just you know order more. I mean, I see a few independent brands, and I think that's the the risk that we're facing today. Is a few being too opportunistic and saying, okay, well, the demand is so so big, let's just produce as much as we can. So we increase our orders because anyway, we don't produce anything. We get prepayment from customers and we just flood the market with uh, with more watches. And I hear brands saying, well, we're going to jump from like a, a few hundred watches to a few thousand. And I think that's, that's scary because we don't really know what the reality of the demand is today. Again, we go back to the idea of speculation. There's a very speculative market of people in the recent years who have been, you know, buying and selling and 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 betting on on the price increase on watches. And I think uh, some people were even ordering the same watch on at multiple dealers. And it's very mm-hmm. difficult for us small brands to to control that. It's probably easier for bigger brands who have huge CRM systems and and ask for resumes for every watch uh, um, person buying. I think uh, we have to be careful. And at Moser, again, we are uh, integrated. Therefore, we cannot jump from a, from a, or double our production from one day to the other. We need to go step by step, hire the right watchmakers, train them. It takes up to 18 months to train them. Then we need the next machine to be able to uh, to produce a few more a few more parts. Then we need people to uh, assemble the elements of the the escapement. Then we need people to uh, to do the final assemblage. We need people for quality. We need the people to to do the the purchasing. So it's a lot of people you need to uh, to. Um, to hire and a lot of investments in machines in, ob- in order for us to grow significantly the production. And in that, in a way, protects us from growing too fast, I would say. And again, for me, it's always been about demand and really generating uh, too much demand for what we can produce, because I think that's what, and people don't like, some people don't like when I say, say, say that, but for me, luxury is when it's not accessible to everybody, but it's not about money. It's about the fact that there's not enough for every everybody. And that's why from 2013 onwards, we said very rare. Because for us, every single watch we produce and every collection we produce, we need to produce less than what we could potentially sell. And we always said it's the N minus one uh, rule. Uh, not knowing what uh, N is, you need to uh, kind of guess <laughs> and say, if we believe we can sell 100, then let's produce 50. Because next year, maybe we can sell 200 and we will produce 100. And by keeping this rule and being you know, uh, very careful about the way we grow, we started with limited editions of 10 pieces and now we do limited edition of 100. And, uh, and that's just by going step by step. We could have said we do limit 100 right away, but then everybody would have got one. And we wouldn't have created that kind of this demand for, for very special, very rare products. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you wouldn't expect an artist doing prints of their work to just do thousands and thousands so everyone can have one the exclusivity is part of the enjoyment that as you say the the rarity in having something special is part of that um so it's it's interesting when people refer to the the lack of availability as being a manufactured thing literally in your case you don't have the manufacturing capability to, to produce more uh, than the demand requires anyway um you mentioned mbnf we spoke about mbnf I think they've really helped to pioneer the landscape for watchmakers doing what they want and what they think the industry likes. How did you come to work with Max? 
Yeah, I think uh, MBN, Max and MBNF have been, um, I mean, Max, I think before MBNF was, um, uh, I mean, really created this idea of innovation and creativity through the, um, through uh, what he did at Harry Winston uh, with oh, the, the Opus, Opus series. Yeah. But uh, I mean, in, among independents, I think if we look at uh, Richard Mille was before and uh, and Overwork as well. I mean, they were the the real pioneers before everybody else in really creating those brands. We have also Hautelance, who is part of uh, our team here, uh, who was really one of the first uh, brands. So I think it's really a, a lot of of brands. I think Max is is kind of a figure. He talks well, so a lot of people recognize him as like uh, the godfather of independent watchmaking. But I mean, with all respect to Max, there's a few others who who help. But I think with Max, what's great is that he has this this energy that to bring people with him. He has this aura, and that's what was so so great to work with him. I think, uh, as I always say, for me, the, the collaboration is less about the result in terms of products. It's more about the process and what we go through. And um, Max and I are very different in the way we work. Uh, and and I'm all about uh, you know let's be uh, pragmatic. He's all about let's get perfection. And then uh, we had interesting discussions there on the on those subject. And I said you know I I I enjoyed those and uh, those moments where like when Max looked at the case of a Moser is like yeah but if we change the angle of the glass by like 0.5 degrees don't you think I'm like Max we have all the cases ready. Do you think I'm gonna create like I don't know how many more and and scrap those just to change the 0.5? be pragmatic so uh <laughs> but then it's in some sometimes that you know i'm not convinced about this something that I, I would say no it's fine i think it's good and then it would be like yeah but this i don't think the colors match we need to to rethink and then going through this exercise would make me realize that he was right but uh but it, so you know it helped me sometimes take a little bit more time before i take a decision where i'm, I'm usually taking very fast the decisions, but sometimes on design because of the experience with Max, I take a little bit longer. But at the same time, he, he learned also. He said, "Yeah, I, I, I think the word I learned from you is let's be pragmatic, and sometimes just just go with it." And uh, there's always this tendency, and that's al almost killed Moser to reach perfection. And mm -hmm. and watchmakers, a lot of, of them are, are like that. They, it's their babies, and they until they have the, the perfect thing, they will not let go. And it's also my role to go to them and said, "Guys, like." This going from 95% to 99 because we'll never get 100. Forget it. We're never going to get 100. It's just impossible. But getting from 95 to 99 will cost us as much as what we, it cost us to go from zero to 95. Yeah. And we cannot afford it because nobody is going to be ready to pay the price of this four, extra 4%. And they will not even see it. So it's uh, <laughs> it's part of my role in the company sometimes to, to get them pissed off. And they're like, oh, man. I mean, I do like that because Tom and I talk about the eighty twenty rule quite a lot, and you're 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 talking about the watchmaking version, which is the ninety ten rule. <laughs> um, I think between you and Max, you'd probably be the ultimate watchmaking power couple. I can see some good stuff really, really coming out of that, and uh, love what's come so far. We might have some surprises. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. You mentioned that every year you do something unusual, something that has a statement. For this year, was the genesis that piece? Well, last year. Of course, for last year, it's the genesis that piece. <laughs> 2023, yeah. <laughs> I forget that. Uh, yeah, we try. I mean, as we, you mentioned, the, uh, I mean, there was the Swiss Alp watch, then the Swiss Mad watch, then there was the Swiss Icon watch, the Moser Nature watch, there yep. was the collaboration with Max, there was yep. uh, the uh, Second Second, there was the um, Vanta Black piece, the No Hands. So, uh, it's not every year at the same day. It used to be every year at the same date, but then suddenly we got too many ideas, so we made a, a, a few more every year. I'm actually creating a, a, a box uh, with, I think it's 12 watches, which are like the 12 iconic crazy pieces we have uh, 
we have developed. So maybe one day I, I can show oh, that to you. Oh, wow. Yeah, we would love to get our hands on that. Uh, the last one to date is uh, is the Genesis project. Yeah. That was uh, also one very, uh, I would say, uh, probably one of the most complicated to implement uh, project. Uh, and like the others, very polarizing. Not everybody understood. A lot of people stopped at the visual of the watch and don't look at what's behind it, but that's what's fun about it. I love to open small windows and see how many people go through the windows to look what's behind it. And uh, those who just look at the windows said, oh my God, this is so stupid. <laughs> well, you've, you've often in the past challenged the industry, um, but now it seems like you're almost challenging your own audience, if you like. It's kind of very meta, which is probably in keeping with the whole NFT digital web three type of uh, point of view. Now, I, I was, from my perspective, the watch itself, I thought the use of 3D printing in the case, like that has so much potential. The interesting three-dimensionality with the crystal, again, visually speaking, I thought that was incredible. Uh, where I struggled a little bit was with uh, the Web3, NFT, all of that kind of thing. Tell me a bit about your thinking there. Yeah. Well, the, the whole idea is about how the, the business has evolved. Uh, in the recent years. And it's all, I mean, the, the watch business used to be very transactional. You sell a watch and then you service it. Okay. And then, uh, well, you own it and you give it to the next generation. I don't think a lot of people keep it for the next generation as they see the big profit coming and they resell the watch, <laughs> et cetera. So they, we, we, we run into a, a change in the, in, the, in the business where the secondary market became very, very important. And we have, I wouldn't say, Tens, but we have a lot of emails every day of people saying, oh, I want to buy, buy this watch, or I want to sell this watch, or what's the value? Can you tell me when it was serviced? Can you tell me who, do you know the guy who is selling it? Can I have uh, information about the number? That's a lot of work for us. And we were thinking, you know, how the value of our products, the secondary market is about transparency, is about insurance, is about reducing the risk in those transactions, and how can we do it? And that's where what blockchain uh, enable to uh, to I think this industry and and other industries is to bring a lot of kind of certified uh, information about authenticity, where it's coming from, who is the person behind, and that's why we wanted to implement a lot of elements that would protect uh, all the the owners and future owners of Moser watches. So that's why we we started working with the with the Aura blockchain. We started implementing certification. We started in, in implementing also an, an insurance because an insurance, I believe, especially uh, an insurance like this one, which is uh, you got your watch stolen, you lose it, whatever, you get uh, reimbursed, is a lot of value to the to the, the the customer. Of course, as we always do with Moser, we want to have also. Um, some symbolic elements. So if we play with Web3, why not create a metaverse and why not create an NFT art? Because that's fun. We created the time capsule, for example, which uh, documents the birth of your watch. I don't know, in, in 100 years from now, when this watch is traded for to somebody else, maybe somebody will have fun looking at the watchmaker, Martina, up here, like putting the last through and seeing the, the escapement of that particular watch, knowing that it's it was on the 24th of February 2023 at 10.36 uh, and 45 seconds a.m. here in Schaffhausen with the Schaffhausen Nachrichten, which is the local newspaper in my hands, and say, well, I, I am currently the CEO. Who, who knows who's going to be the, 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 the CEO at that time, or even if Moser is still going to be there. As a collector, I would appreciate that. So we thought, you know, we bring value to the people, uh, to the owners, to our products, protecting more security, more transparency. For me, that's a lot of value to, to the community. And I think it's a responsibility of the brands to do that. I think the the journey of a watch starts 
at the moment where we sell it. It's not the end of it. A lot of brands see the end of the journey was once they have produced, they have created it, they have produced it, they have put it in display. It's been sold to the customer. Okay, might come back for service, but it's pretty much I've done my job. I think that's where our job starts. And I'm trying to bring as many tools as possible with a pilot, very polarizing product, as you said, which I personally love. I was wearing it today for a photo shoot. I, I, I like the design. I think it's very Minecraft. Maybe, you know, I have younger kids. I see my my <laughs> uh, my kids on, on all those uh, things like playing and I, I find it cool. But I think the most important for me is what can we do with the technology? A lot of things will evolve in the years to come. But I think the responsibility is to explore how to protect our owners and future owners, protect the value of our product, bring security and transparency. And that's what we're trying to do with all those NFTs and, and blockchain uh, technology. I think, unfortunately, there was a, a lot of bad press around NFTs in the last few months and yeah, the banks bankruptcy and but the technology is there, and I believe it will add a lot of value uh, for those who recognize it. And, and to be honest, we got so many requests for this watch. We were totally oversold. Uh, we're going to create two amazing products um, because it's part of a triptych. The next one will be something that a lot of people will wish they get. And then the, the last one would probably be something that uh, is, my idea would be to create it with the owners, like to create something together uh, with the 50 uh, owners of the of the first Genesis. And yeah, and I think it's it's these are people who believe in and understand what we're trying to do, and uh, I would I look forward to working with them. If I can take an interpretation from that, I think it's really good that as a brand you're acknowledging the life after sale, because um, least of all we, we being Watchfinder, pre-owned watches, etc. There's a lot of traditional brands. This goes back to the very genesis of what genesis of what we were talking about with Moser, which is challenging the norms that aren't actually in the best interest of the customers. The in-house business, um, the, the speed of development, how things look, how things are incorporated with the customer input. And a lot of these traditional brands insist that a watch is purchased and then lives with its owner forever. And even with the, the greatest of collectors who's most into watches, they can't just continually amass a pile ad infinitum they, they will choose to sell some things yeah i mean those brands even pre uh, ask them not to sell them they pre they prevent it they tried really to fight against people <laughs> reselling the watches of course you don't want too much speculation but again yeah. bringing more transparency helps yeah that's really cool um as we wrap up because we're, we're just almost out of time care to drop any little hints as to what we might be expecting in 2023 ah, a lot of things uh, I, to be honest, if we if we talk about something crazy, I'm not yet sure. We have a few ideas, but I don't know which one we might implement. But in terms of more like the traditional things, I mean, we're launching in a couple of weeks. We'll have a nice perpetual calendar for most or something. I think one of my dream watches um, uh, in the Endeavor collection. Uh, really looking forward to launching this one. There's a there's a very emotional link towards this particular watch because of the material we're using. If you've seen some of our previous interviews, so you probably. Uh, know which material i mean my first watch i received when i was 18 was in a special material from ap uh, so this one we finally get to bring to the market which was my dream almost since we started with moser but it's a material that is very difficult to work with then we have um what do we have uh, we have a new color for the streamliner we're stopping the the green dragon in 2000 and, and at the end of 2022 we're still delivering a few, the few that are late because of late del deliveries of certain components. And then we'll have just for 2023, a special color that we will be revealing just after Watches and Wonders, I think, uh, which is quite nice. It's very different uh, from the Green Dragon. 
it's another animal out there. Uh, that's another hint. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then what else do we have? Uh, we have a new movement. I hope we can, we have two actually. We have a module that we have developed uh, with, uh, with Agenor, which is very, very cool, uh, a calendar. They're getting very, very good at calendars and we're working with them on there. And I hope we can bring it towards uh, September and we have uh, something completely internal, which is a smaller, thinner, very nice new movement. <laughs> we're also bringing slowly new codes in our movements for the sport watches compared to the traditional the streamliner perpetual calendar we brought, like the, the, the movements is more, it's darker than the the, the, the chrono. So we're yeah. slowly shifting for the sport watches or the, the steel cases uh, like Pioneer and Streamliner towards dark ray movements. And we keep the traditional endeavor and heritage with the light gray movement. So we're kind of creating two codes within our codes. Um, and, and slowly more, uh, bringing a little bit more opening in the movements. I mean, we started learning how to work with skeletons a couple of years ago, and now we implemented it in the skeleton cylindrical tourbillon last year, which you referred to as winning the Grand Prix Genève uh, in the tourbillon category last year. Uh, so we continue to explore, like bringing a little bit more, like we used to be really like three quarter bridges type of uh, movements. We try to, to open them a little bit more now. Yeah. And that's something that you will see as an evolution. And that's why also there's only one color for the streamliner this year, because we are in a mutation and we wanted to have like a 2023 a year where we do something different, special to be able to bring something else in 2024. <laughs> <Are> enough <laughs> tips? You are ridiculous. Oh, and, 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 oh, and, and we're bringing a smaller, <laughs> yeah, smaller, uh, somebody, a lot of people have been asking me for a smaller version of one of our iconic uh, a product and it's not the streamliner and uh and that's something we had long discussion within the team i have the smallest wrist in the in the team so everybody in the beginning said oh no we need a bigger one we need a bigger one and now they all realized that i was right, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for joining us and being candid and you know taking uh taking all the questions Honestly, I, I do find Moza to be one of the most exciting brands that's out there. Like you guys could be relied upon for consistently doing things that grab my attention. And uh, long may that continue before the rest of Switzerland <laughs> finally eats your bones. Um, this uh, has been a, a fascinating conversation. And if you're a listener, if we ever to have Edward on again, what would you ask him? Post your comments uh, down below and we'll see if we can fire them at him. Thank you very, very much. Really, really appreciate it. And um, hopefully we'll get to have many more conversations in the future. Uh, Divya and listener, please do like, comment, subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 